Hey team, welcome to episode 76 of Transition Talk, where we talk about dental transitions and how to navigate the sometimes messy path to practice ownership. In this episode, we are going to go deep into the world of valuations and answer the question, what makes a dental valuation complex? Your practice's history, facts, what makes it unique, what tells the story, we can tell a lot by looking at the numbers but some details can make the valuation more complicated than others. In fact, there are a lot of them you'll learn today. And these factors require more time to interpret, more questions from our team, and just more understanding from you. We want to shine a light on those factors today and keep in mind they're not bad, just different. And so in this episode, our amazing senior valuation analyst, Dawn Whitehurst, is joining us. She has been knocking out valuation after valuation this year for our clients, and we're happy to have her join us again today to shed some light and expertise on this topic. So welcome back, Dawn. Thanks, Christy. I appreciate you having me back on. Of course. If you haven't already listened to episode 52, Dawn made her transition talk debut on risk and valuations and then we also have episode 21 valuation hurdles so if you haven't listened to those stop now go back listen and then come back and join us but as always we also have the mr amazing charles loretto two amazings and and, and uh, two intros just, so we do have I, an amazing I, it's team it's just amazing <laughs> amazing it is a loretto word i, I love the word amazing <laughs> it's amazing how are you, girl? I'm good. It's a short, long week. Yeah. You know, we've just finished Labor Day. We're going to hear this in, not in real time, but we just finished Labor Day. And it's amazing to me that a four-day week can feel like 72. Yeah. So it's yeah. Thursday. It's your house and your uh, kitchen all done? Oh, it's so all done, which yeah. makes me feel very good. It's all put back together. Anyone's gone through a kitchen remodel, Don, you know you know that. Yeah. I know it all too well. And uh, knows that you do those and then you say, I'm never doing that again. Yeah. But I'm really happy. I got to share a funny uh, Cole story. So this just happened last night. Calls me up, Dad. Um, okay, good news and bad news. Okay. <laughs> so I got all my classes signed up and I'm sitting in class and it's like week one and I aced the first quiz. I was like, wow, this seems very easy and very familiar. The kid has already taken the class. Somehow him, <laughs> somehow the counselor let the kid take the class again. I'm like, what? what, what? Loretto dollars oh hard spent. So this is the good news. He goes and sells to the professor. Hey, kind of embarrassed. I've already taken this course. I did it online, so I didn't get a chance to meet you. You know, psychology course is my major. And I was just wondering if there's a TA spot, I'd love to help you with any research projects. And he says, well, actually, I'm kind of looking for somebody you need to apply. I've got six other candidates. And he got it. <gasps> That's little, awesome. Little Loretto is a TA now. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I was kind of proud of him. Yeah. So is he still going to take the course? No, he, he gets, gets to he... audit. He gets okay. to audit it, and it gets just apply to another. Okay, so it yeah. can be like a extra Yeah, course. yeah. And there's some other work. And so he ends up, to, I think he got another class assigned, but he gets these extra credits. So, uh, he, and he's going to finish on time. That's like amazing. He's in four that years. Amazing. It is. That, it is that's it a is rarity amazing. these days. So this I've is heard. his senior year and, and some good news with 
he took the same class. It does sound like something I would do. So, <laughs> and then just spin it to make yeah, you something spin else. It. I always say, give me the bad, but also give me the give me the good. Tell me there is good news before you tell me the bad news. Love it. Well, tell me. Okay, so like I got an email that this episode was happening. Oh, so yeah. tell the listeners how this episode came to be. So so Don and I had a little travel. We went up to Michigan, Ann Arbor, beautiful Ann Arbor, middle of summer. We're sitting outside thousands of people literally on the street we've got a beautiful kind of outdoor cafe we had a cocktail in front of us and <laughs> you know we're doing well and, and i we're going through the family thing and i was like well tell me how work is going and she just you know don drinks she's the cheapest date ever you know she <laughs> one beer maybe one drink i mean it's i like i love going out of town with don it's just gonna be a cheap vacation you know so as opposed uh, to christy no 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 no. you got double credit card for that but she starts telling me about some of the complex valuations and so i'm asking questions and she's just going off about this one this one this one and i looked at her and i said i love you stop <laughs> And I just started typing up all the notes from what she just got through telling me and said, next podcast. So <laughs> that's how we are here. This is, I this love is, it. Every podcast is like that. It is, it's something that is happening in our lives. There's like, okay, this is definitely another conversation. We've had conversations, but man, there's so many examples on this one. I do think this will be a longer episode and something that I think our listeners, both on the buyer and seller side, will more than likely want to listen to multiple times because there's so many different unique factors on why that valuation is so unique. And that's obviously why Don, the expert in the transition world is here. And so I'm anxious and excited about participating and mainly uh, listening in on Don tell us uh, how these things and why these things are so unique. Yep, absolutely. So we'll just dive in. So I mean, just a little refresher again, go back to listen to episode 52 and 21. But a formal valuation, I think it's important to let's just talk about what that is and what it isn't like from the get go. If you are a seller listening or you're a buyer listening and you've gone on to a website to find a practice for sale and it's a broker and you get something and it's a couple page document that says they're listing the practice for X and here's some information about it. That is not a formal valuation, right? That is can be a valid price. I'm not saying it's a wrong number. It is just in our world, a formal valuation is a type of document it is an opinion of value and it follows all the valuation standards that exist in the world, which shockingly, there are a lot of them. And most of the time, the valuation and the price are gonna be pretty equal, right? They're gonna both be in the ballpark. But we know from other episodes that you and I have talked about, Charles, that sometimes the value doesn't equal the price, right? Sometimes it's a super competitive market, it fits all your boxes, you're willing to pay more, you are super risk averse, there's something that's, you know, financially it looks great, but there's this other piece that to you as a buyer or a seller, maybe there's an issue, so you're not willing to pay what it's valued at, right? There's all these pieces that can make it vary. So in today's episode, all that we're talking about is the formal value. And if you hire someone to do a formal valuation, what those factors and how these factors might change it. So a formal valuation is when we look at profitability, we're gonna look at risk, Everything we're going to talk about today is profitability or risk, and we're looking at a historical time frame. So all our valuations, what method do we use, Don? The capitalization of earnings method. Yes, and we can bore you to death talking about it, but we <laughs> won't. But that's the method that our valuation team uses. It's probably the most common in the industry. There are a lot of other methods. If you Google it, you can find those. I'm happy to set up some time and chat with you about those if you're really that interested. But that's the method that we use, and profitability and risk are the driver of those. And so understanding how your practice has been profitable, right? 
rate over the course of time, you know, last two, three, four years, is what every part of our goal and our valuation process is aimed at learning. We can tell a lot by financials, but you, right, the seller or the client, are really the keeper of all of the information and you know the history. So those communication channels between our client, the seller, and evaluation team, our team, is are really, really important. Our valuation process takes about eight to 12 weeks, probably verging on more of like the 10 to 12 week, just the time it takes to gather information. And so it's a long process. You're spending a lot of time with us. You probably don't love our emails by the time we're done, but you really like the final report. So we're gonna dive in today. We're gonna talk about all the things that can make evaluation complex. We're exiting what I think is probably the most complex time, at least in recent history of the dental industry and just life in general, right? Like things were crazy in 20 and then were amazing in 21 in the dental industry. And then things I think are trying to settle back into a normal. And so because of that, or maybe at the same time as that, like what the valuations we're seeing come through, at least our world, are harder than they were pre-COVID. Um, COVID clearly adds a level of complexity, but I think practices are growing. They're adding people. They had turnover. They decided to shift gears during COVID. And so we're just seeing a lot of nuances that are different. So that's what we're going to talk about today. So one other thing I'd add there too is many times a buyer, uh, when they're looking at a practice to acquire, uh, that typically is going to go through a broker and they're saying, hey, we're waiting on the valuation. Again, you may not be waiting on a valuation. You may be waiting on a suggested price. Good point. The broker is going to, no offense to the many of the brokers, the broker is simply going to put together, I've seen it 90% of the time, a tax return, four pages of handwritten, this is about the practice, 89 pages of production provider reports (laughs) and fee schedules and what happened on January the 6th of 2020. (laughs) It's not relevant. It's just not relevant. You know, what you're looking for is the history of the practice the financials, and you need someone who cleans it up to show you that the practice did a million, and after all the doctor add backs and interest depreciation, all the things that we're gonna do in evaluation, the thing makes 400 grand, and therefore the suggested price is 800. And just like Christy said, the valuation, or in this case, Don's team, may do the exact same exercise, and it may take eight weeks, and it may come up to the exact same dollar, okay? But it's at least the detailed clarifications and we do a lot of these formal valuations when needed. And a lot of those are when you're an owner and you're transitioning a business and even creating a partnership. So I would mm-hmm. say 90 plus percent of the time when we're doing a formal valuation, there's usually a partnership that's involved. So anyway, a huge distinction between the two is valuation that's formal and a suggested price based on information. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So let's talk about financials. So one of the things we run into, Don, is are when the financials of the practice don't necessarily paint the full picture for us, which is not, I wouldn't say this is super common, but when it happens, it's one of those things that we give a big sigh over. So give me some examples of when that's happened. Clearly won't name any names, but if you're listening, you know who you are. (laughs) Yeah, when you're kind of in the details of these engagements and it's a little bit frustrating when you've had a lot of conversations with clients and what is a very important detail for us kind of creeps up out of nowhere sometimes, Mm -hmm. then you think, okay, well, shouldn't this be really apparent to them? And so, you know, that helps us just change our processes and and make sure that we're asking all of the questions that we need to. But I would say a couple of good examples as far as when things are not in the the financials as 
as as far as an expense that necessarily we wouldn't be aware of. An example, uh, some practices, they choose to run their lab expenses and pay those fees through their personal corporations instead of, say, an existing partnership. Mm -hmm. And so if it's not in the financials that we are reviewing and analyzing, then we don't know about it. Mm -hmm. And so that's a piece that can have a, a big impact on the profitability of the practice and the overall value. Yeah. And that's similar to like a shared expense, right? Like mm -hmm. you have a shared expense with the practice next door. And so yours is, you know, oh, that's not even on my financials. I pay this other guy, you know, and it, it shows up on their financials. Okay. Well, we wouldn't know that, but if someone buys this practice, they need to know about that expense, right? Not only are we adding back things to make it look more profitable, we're also adding expenses if we need to. Mm -hmm. We've also had bank accounts not be properly kind of um, reflected in the financials? Kind of talk about that that one. Yeah, so it's important to understand where the, the cash is flowing through. And so we had a situation where there was a practice that had multiple locations and they chose to keep those entities separate. However, there was a misappropriated bank account to the practice location mm -hmm. that we were valuing. So it overinflated the revenue for the practice. And so then once that piece was identified and then we made those adjustments that were appropriate, obviously it had a, a large impact on the overall valuation process and, and the value. And so, you know, that's definitely a very important piece to understand and be able to relay that information correctly to the team that's doing your valuation. Yeah. And I think that goes back to like having, you always say this, Charles, like, clean financials and understand your financials because mm -hmm. in that instance the CPA was not aware that that bank account was not related to that entity mm -hmm. and so their conversations with the client had been you have a million dollar practice here's what your valuation should likely come at but then really they're collect their million dollar collection practice was really like a seven fifty eight hundred thousand dollar collection practice so the valuation expectation was also not aligned and so again clean financials, all the categories, good chart of accounts, but then also communication from you as a client to your CPA, making sure you understand what's going into those expenses and, you know, and accounts, and then also being able to communicate with us that that is a problem. So just uh, for both buyers and sellers, when you have separate locations, the EIN numbers, separate locations are key, key financial statements per location. It can work if you have three locations and you have just one giant corporation, but maybe separate financial statements per office, and they all kind of funnel through to this one giant thing. I mean, call it $3 million as an overall practice collections, practice A, B, and C. The challenge is, is if you ever try to sell one of those A, B, or C separately, and you don't have clean financial statements just in that office, it will become complex. And just know at some point in your career, you're going to be acquiring and selling. And so you want to put the systems in place early on, knowing that you might want to sell. I can't tell you how many times I've seen practice A, B, or C. Now we're acquiring D, and it's too far away. I got the hometown boy or girl that's going there, and I was going to sell them 50% of the practice, but I don't have financial statements to even show them, show them in the bank. It is a nightmare. So just as Don is just saying, just really good, nice, clean financial statements per location, credit cards that are separate by location, bank statements that are separate, separate accounting is super important to make sure we're getting understanding the practice and also we're getting the full value out of it. 
Yeah, because if you don't do that, Don and I will say, sorry, we can't value your practice. We might be able to like help you estimate a price, but from a formal valuation standpoint, we really do need a source document that says you are telling us this is what the revenues and expenses are versus us just making good estimates. Um, or, or we estimate the cost for us to value your business as X, yeah. but now later in the interview, <laughs> you are a Y. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How your many fee, times has that happened? Your, your yes. fee gets to go up. <laughs> Well, and I think too, you know, as far as the having the back to the clean financials. So when we look at the expenses of the practice, and we're trying to call out those that are discretionary or personal choices of the owner to try and add back to that cash flow, we have to be able to tie everything back to your tax returns, to the profit and loss, and then we use the general ledger as our kind of our storybook, our guideline, our diary, if you will, of those expenses. And when, as an example, if you get a practice and you have a general ledger and every (laughs) expense category says credit card activity, January, credit card activity, Amex, Amex, Amex. February, March, April. And you're like, okay, this answers no questions whatsoever. So just expect that you will get a very lengthy email Mm -hmm. from our team wanting clarifications. Mm -hmm. You'll be very annoyed at the (laughs) Amex lines in your general ledger if that happens. Okay, good. And then another thing I think this goes without saying, but we know that our clients oftentimes live in production land right? Versus if we're doing evaluation, we are valuing the collections and the expenses and the resulting profitability that comes out of your practice. So if you have a practice that does $4 million, but you're heavy Medicaid, and what actually comes through the door is two or you know three even, your practice valuation, if you think of all those rules of thumb, which John and I always like cringe a little bit, you know, 70% of collections, it's of collections. It's not of production. And so you have to understand going in, my production is X, my collections are Y. Our valuation is really focused on the collections and that resulting profit. So low collection practices from a production standpoint because of Medicaid or because of bad reimbursement rates are already impacting your valuation through the number of collections that are coming through the door. So. Yeah, I mean, just risk factors when you're dealing with insurance, just risk factors are dealing with in this case, Medicaid, and it's just going to require the person to do more work for a less, you know, adjusted production number. Of course, there's more risk. Of course, it's going to impact your value. It's not just we did four million. Why did it value so low? Well, actually, you did two million, and because of this one, two, three risk factors, that's why your value maybe came in at one point five, and you were expecting something different than that. Yeah. Another area. This is big. This has been like a the biggest painful thing since COVID. I don't know why, but it has been. Your locations, your buildings, your build outs, the just expansion, like the building and space you're in clearly has a direct relationship with the amount, well, not all the time, but from the most part, the size of your space clearly has an indication of how much productivity you can do and what amount of dentistry you can kind of flow through each of your chairs. And so what we've run into is people changing their space and those changes being close to valuation date. So give us some examples, Don. This is kind of the thorn in your side sometimes. (laughs) And we ask a lot of questions about this on the front end, but tell us the type of questions that we ask in that intro call that we have with clients and like why we're asking those questions. Yeah, so in regards to the buildings and the locations, first thing we wanna understand, you know, has there been anything dynamically that's changed about the practice as far as the square footage? Now, I don't, I'm not interested if the square footage is a supply closet or something that 
is not used to produce, mm-hmm. we want to understand, have you added two, two operatories? Have you built out an existing space and, and added an, an additional chair? Mm-hmm. Those are all things that really, from our perspective, if we look at a practice, say you have grown from four chairs to eight chairs, well, really, that is going to make those two years almost non-comparables because the ability and capability of the practice to now produce at a much higher level. And if you add in, um, adding in an associate during that time to join mm-hmm. the practice, now we have to sit here and look at this and say, okay, and you know, Christy and I have a lot of conversations in regards to these special situations to say, what is reasonable to say, is this practice comparable in this given year versus the year prior. And so those are some of the hard decisions that we have to make uh, in relation to timing of the associates joining as far as the size of the space and just Mm -hmm. understanding how the space has changed during that time. Yeah, and I think it's also the expectation and the thought process of our client who has made this investment, right? Like they have spent the money to do this build out, to build out these additional ops. And I like your clarification of if you've put down some new carpet and you've put down, you know, some paint and like just, you know, maybe got some new waiting room furniture, that might have been an investment, but that's not changing what your practice is. It's not changing its ability to produce and not like funneling growth. And so when we talk about investment and building, I think it's important to put those into two categories, right? If I just invest in making my house prettier, it might make it more attractive to patients, but it doesn't necessarily make it more valuable from a profitability standpoint. And so that's kind of that piece that you have to know and what we always say, right? Don't go invest in a bunch of improvements and expect it to automatically increase your valuation. But I think here and what we're seeing, which makes it more challenging, and these are the details that you and I spend a lot of time trying to figure out is if I actually improve the practice from a production collection capacity, how do we handle those? Okay. And it matters when, Okay, if your valuation date is December 31st of 21 and you do all of these in 21, right, then we're probably going to see a growth in collections, we're going to see a growth in profitability, and that is going to help your practice. If you do those changes in October, November of 21, and we're valuing it in December of 21, we probably have not seen any of the growth capacity that will come from those. And therefore your valuation is probably gonna be very different than what you expected it to be, okay? And that's where valuation and price sometimes differ if we've made investments that aren't yet in that number. So let me put this from a numbers perspective. You've got a five operatory practice. You got associates been there for six, eight months. Senior doctor was doing a million two end of the year numbers, they're at a million five. So if we take those year end numbers and we look at previous couple of years, just for simplicity, let's say that the valuation of this practice is $1 million. But the seller had to, maybe in this October timeframe that Christy's talking about as an example, had to invest a half a million dollars to expand from a five chair practice to an eight chair practice. So the sellers left going, well, wait a minute. I just took out a half a million dollar loan. You're telling me that the value is a million dollars. And you're telling me that this guy who's been here for six, eight, nine months, he's gonna give me a half a million dollars? That's just gonna cover my note. There's no way I'm gonna do that. And so that there becomes that, this confusion. And now the buyer's saying, oh, I feel like I'm building this. And the seller feels like I'm just carrying this guy. So you can absolutely see that there's this expectations 
that are just not going to be met on both sides. And in my opinion about that scenario is there wasn't a path that said to, hey, buyer, I've got a million to practice, come in as an associate, I'm going to invest a half a million, I'm going to get the practice valued. But for me to make this half a million dollar commitment, despite what the valuation may come in, I think it's reasonable that we share maybe this build out expense together. Now, I'm not saying who's right or wrong. That's the seller's right, the buyer's right, we're right. I'm saying there needs to be an open, canon conversation between all the parties to figure out what's where, almost agree and kind of negotiate of how that's going to play out because it's a very, very delicate situation. Yeah. Especially you buy maybe, you know, a $120,000 CVCT machine that maybe the seller really, really, really wants because the seller's placing implants and the young person's not. Really, I want to pay half for that? So, I mean, there's you can see how delicate these situations are. And they're just, we really need to lay it all out, just like in any relationship, to talk about each piece and to figure out what's reasonable and fair. Yeah, and I think that what Don said is like the crux of this, right? Our goal in valuation is to come up with a stream of cash flow that is likely to be the cash flow stream moving forward, okay? But we are sometimes in conflict with that because valuation standards also say we cannot value the practice just on the last 12 months, right? We have to look at the historical period. Now, we basically have come to the conclusion that including those previous years, but weighting them much lower than we normally would helps. But I mean, Don, how many times have I said they're just valuing this too early? Yes, that's a very common (laughs) statement. (laughs) Which is if you do a big investment in your practice and expand it, in 22 and we're valuing it in 22 but 21 20 and 19 don't have that space right it never would have been that practice don and i have to include likely at least 21 if not maybe some of 20 right so then that value is deflated a bit but if you waited until 24 to value that practice i can drop out 21 20, 19, I now I'm only looking at the time that practice has been expanded and the value would be higher, right? Now, transition-wise, we know that that's not always a feasible thing, right? You have someone who wants to buy in, they're not gonna wait two years. And so that's where this, what Charles, what you're saying comes into play of like, I'm valuing the practice, but you need to recognize the investment that was made and we're gonna share that because all of that hasn't been realized yet. And so for us, it's an easy answer because we know what our rules are and we know how to look at this and like we might spend some time talking about the specifics of an individual practice but like the general idea of what we're doing valuation wise is very clear transition wise it becomes more of an expectation of understanding what this valuation is going to be and what it's not yeah and again like don's team they're, they're coming with the, the valuation you're doing this what 60 times now a year roughly and so this is this formal report and so either we're involved on the NDP front in a seller consulting relationship on top of the valuation, or you're providing the valuation to, in this case, doctors, so they can submit to their advisors, either a Kane Waters advisor or to some other advisor to essentially handle these tricky, tricky nuances. Yep, absolutely. What other pieces here in the building, right? We talked about like expanding square footage, expanding ops, like what other building issues come up? Yeah, so as far as the buildings, another issue that we see often is um, when there's been an acquirement of other additional locations. And Mm -hmm. even over a short period of maybe three to four years, we've seen practices that are kind of, and it may be an effect from COVID, everybody is wanting to kind of make sure that they get the market share in their area. So they're kind of 
of scooping up some of these smaller smaller practices. And so for those valuations that we're doing that we see that maybe late 19, they acquired a practice location. And so now we've expanded number of locations, we've expanded our production capability. And then another year and a half later, then they say, okay, well, now we've purchased the patient records of this doctor that was retiring. So now we've automatically increased our ability for patient flow twofold from that. And so any type of acquisition, whether it's patient records or additional locations in that short amount of time kind of adds a layer of complexity uh, to our decision making. Yeah, because I think it's harder to understand like how many of those patients are going to stay, how much of that is like catch up of production. So like, again, going back to like, what does this practice look like moving forward? How and how much risk do we have in not knowing what next year is going to look like? And so these acquisitions really challenge that. First, from a, just from a financial planning standpoint, I love acquisitions of patients. I love acquisitions of these smaller practices. I think it's beautiful to really grow your footprint and to grow your profitability. Again, numbers guy, I've got a million dollar practice and I acquire another location, super small. I pay 300,000 for it. It's a 400 collection practice. I buy it in June. Associate comes into the practice and I develop a game plan they're gonna buy in next year. All of a sudden, that $300,000 investment, 400 collections at practice two, now turns into a million dollars, okay? So you can see the difficulty for us to say, hey, you know, yeah, let's just assign this $300,000 purchase price practice all the way to a, it's doing a million, we should just assign an $800,000 price to it, and it's still got outdated stuff. You can see the complexity both from a young buyer and a seller to say, well, I just want the higher price. And the buyer's like, hey, wait a minute. I just got in here. I'm the one that's running that practice over there four days a week. I know you bought it for 300. You haven't made any upgrades to it. Now you're trying to charge me 800,000. You can see the conflict there. You need the person mm-hmm. to do the work. Of course, you made the investment. Of course, you should be rewarded for it. How much? I don't know. That's part of the consulting mm-hmm. to figure that part out. So uh, certainly complex. Yeah, absolutely. And then I think the last thing on buildings is that I mentioned it earlier, the shared spaces. Those add complexity on on all fronts, valuation and transition. I think that there it's just if you currently, if you're listening and you have a shared space, I think we even have an episode about shared spaces at some point, um, have it written down how you're doing it. Have an agreement. Have an agreement. Have an Excel sheet or a piece of paper, something that shows how you are allocating expenses so that we as a valuation team can understand it, so your buyer can understand it. Because again, we are trying to say this is the practice and this is the profitability and these are the expenses. And if you do not know, we do not know. Christy, can you explain to our listeners what a shared space is? Yeah. So when you share a space with another dentist, and oftentimes this is popular in either certain geographic regions of the country, but you know, you walk into a patient waiting room and there's two doors and you go left for Dr. Anderson and right for Dr. Whitehurst, you know? And then in the back, maybe there's some shared equipment because we've got maybe like Mm -hmm. an X-ray or a pano or something, right? Like we've got stuff back there, maybe there's a shared break room. Maybe we have one front desk that they see both patients and kind of direct traffic. All of those expenses, we have seen simple and we have seen very complex. And again, it goes back to what are we valuing? This is no different than having multiple locations. If I can't see from your entity what your profit and expenses and revenues are, 
I can't just value your practice, right? We're talking to a practice right now that's a shared space and the way they do it is super complex and we might have to value our client and this other guy over here and value the operations because they've never really had any distinct plan or allocation of expenses. And so we can't, from a risk perspective, say that we're giving a formal opinion about the value of this when we don't know really what the historical numbers have been. This sounds like a great idea and concept of sharing. It is a horrible idea as far as pulling the equity out of the business and transition. Mm -hmm. If you're person A or B in that situation, meaning in the shared position, your buyer is A or B. That's, that is the best person to buy your practice. If you're trying to sell it to a third party, if I'm a young buyer and I'm trying to come into that, I'm like, well, wait a minute, why wouldn't all the patients just go over to this older, more established guy or gal? I'm this young person. They're never going to accept my treatment. Uh, they're just going to go next door. So there's this anxiety from a buyer's perspective and it creates problems. So if you're in that or purchasing that, not saying that it won't be successful. I'm just saying that it's going to be more complicated than you might think. Yes, 100%. We've talked about associates in relationship to them coming on board, causing a big spike in production collections, and kind of how that might impact the numbers. I think from a valuation perspective, I think it's important from a we get this question a lot. We present these valuations. We go into a room. We explain how our process and talk about the full report and how we got to the numbers. And when we talk about what years we include in the valuation, if an associate has started during that time, there is always the question of why and how am I getting credit for what I have contributed to this practice, right? And so Don, everyone has a different answer. What's your answer when, when they ask this question? Well, it's a great question, and I would probably have the same if I was in that mm-hmm. situation. And usually what we try and explain is the seller is creating an opportunity for that buyer to come in and be productive and to grow in their skills and their amount that they can produce. So the seller, in essence, is taking on all the risk, okay? So he's creating and providing that opportunity for the buyer to grow. And I know Charles and I had kind of talked about this before that the purpose of the associate coming in and there being a partner is you want the practice to grow that's Mm -hmm. the goal so some of that is just going to be that's kind of how it is you know Mm -hmm. you are going to have to pay for a little bit of of what you've grown I'm going to set you up really good here too do we care who the associate is when we do a formal valuation? No, we do not. Mm-hmm. You could just have a big X on somebody's name in the valuation because we are looking at the overall shift in the practice. So what we mean by that is, has the practice been able to sustain or grow despite changes happening? Meaning, did you have a retiring previous owner that was an associate working back for a couple of years? Did he decide to leave? And during that time, you brought in one or two associates And so we're looking at it as an overall, Mm -hmm. what has the practice been able to do? So like Christy said, we do not care who you are as the buyer, but is that practice going to be able to maintain and grow with your presence there? Mm -hmm. 100%. And that's, I think, a hard distinction, right? And again, no offense to you buyers and associates out there. care about you, but I don't care about you when I'm doing a formal valuation because I'm valuing the practice as a whole. I'm valuing, like Don said, the ability and stability and and the interchange of doctors and that consistency in production. If you have an agreement that you are going to get credit 
for whatever time period you've been here, then that is typically done after valuation, right? That's typically something you and your seller say, okay, well, I'm willing to give you, seller says, I'm willing to give you 10% off, or I'm willing to value it as of this date, maybe a year into you starting there versus two years. That is how you get credit in evaluation, not that we say, well, you know, Dr. Anderson can do all these extra procedures, so that should increase the valuation. No, that is super subjective. We're looking at historical, what's it done, and, and what's the overall practice. I love that. I love that we can set that time if, you know, 18 months, two years, at some point that we're going to value it. I think that's fair. Associate, I hate to tell you this, but, you know, senior doctor, uh, he, she typically has a couple of thousand active patients, 10, 20 years in the community. They have a brand. They have literally cars showing up there every morning and that is how you're going to grow the practice it's going to be with you but you are not unfortunately the reason it's growing it's the brand that's shifting over to you now i mean that may hurt your feelings but i i'm sorry if you tell me charles i grew up in this town i've been practicing down the street i have uh, for five years as the associate i'm an independent contractor i have the right to market to all of my 1000 active patients and i'm going to send them a letter tomorrow that i'm going to go from this location to that location and you bring that thousand patients over to dr johnson's practice and you want the value of it before amen I am on your side, 1,000%. That is a reasonable, fair, and what we're going to do. But from the town, and you know you have a big family, that's going to equate to 10, 20, 30 patients. You can get 50 new patients in one month just by being involved in Dr. Johnson's practice and Dr. Johnson saying, hey, entire team, entire community, this is my associate, and get 50 new patients a month. They go directly to you. And if it doesn't grow, you're a liability. So we need it to grow. And you both will become more successful together. That's what we love about partnerships because we can grow the practice and make it more profitable. And it just allows for a beautiful relationship. So I love partnerships, but there is some timing of how we do this valuation and clear expectations early on, like I said, is, is super important of when and how this is all done. Absolutely. So our uh, producer, Joellen, is uh, looking at her clock. So <laughs> I want to make sure we cover some additional pieces of this. So I'm going to do a little, like, I, we have not talked about this, so I hope you're ready. I'm going to ask you questions, and I want you to tell me what you think about it from a valuation perspective. Okay? Okay. Give me three things that impact an orthodontic valuation that do not impact another type of specialty. Okay, you want me to go first? Yeah, that's fine. Production. Production. Super important. I want to look at uh, details like inside that production, I want to look at starts. There's a higher percentage. There's a reasonable amount of prepaids Mm -hmm. in orthodontics. Any prepaids on maybe a perio practice, Mm -hmm. things like that, we would look at uh, because it's going to impact the the collections. But a reasonable amount of prepaids. And production we care about because... Because it's, it's showing the number of patients that actually started on the practice yep. that yet have not yet paid. I'd also want to look other key factors would be like just observation cases. Mm-hmm. It's the number of people that we're looking at and talking to, but you haven't yet got paid. There's really nothing like that in the other mm-hmm. specialties. So those would easily be two, three things on top of my head. What's one? Contracts receivable. Yep doesn't exist anywhere else and we care a lot about what that is that's production growing right and contracts being at what they should be right should Mm -hmm. should there's an episode about that um those two things show us why orthodontic practices sometimes will value 
or priced at these higher prices because there's future work in the pipeline and future like obligations that your patients have essentially made that say, I'm going to stay with the practice for this amount of time. I've got braces on them there. There's no question that orthodontics by far is the most complicated of all the specialties, hands down from evaluation standpoint, because there's just so many moving levers to see the value and to ask. And so it's fun because I think if we're helping a buyer, you can look at some of those factors and say, oh my God, this is an amazing practice based on all of this. Or, oh my God, I get that it's ortho and it's high valuations, but I'm concerned because of this as well. Yep, 100%. So what about if you have a practice, highly restorative, and you've got a super producer, how does that impact the valuation? So super producer to me is a $2 million GP, does it all, four operatories. They got 29 letters behind their names. The MSA, the DDE, you know, they've gone to all implantology this. That's super risky. It's amazing that they do that. I'm sure they're excellent at what they do, but that's 20 years of experience. Mm -hmm. So you're telling me you want just want to value this business. Who's going to buy it? Mm -hmm. That's, I mean, it takes about four or five years with all the training and mentorship. So I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. I'm always concerned for that super doctor. They need to make sure they have plenty of room and bring in a, a regular associate that can maybe grow the, just the general dentistry side of things let them focus on maybe some of the bigger procedures to grow the practice. And maybe they're only going to buy in a certain percentage. Yep. And then clearly from a profitability standpoint, it's as profitable as it is, right? Facts are facts. It's the risk that we would be adjusting an evaluation on that like doctor hygiene ratio and kind of how much one person is doing versus the their maybe other partners or associate that's there. Yeah. Don's team may look at it and say it's a $2 million practice, 50% overhead makes a million bucks. The first high level overview is like, holy crap, this thing makes a lot of money, but you can't do the work. Yeah. You can't do the work, you know? So then I, I would be very nervous and that's why our valuations will take all that into consideration. It's a hard conversation to have with a seller that your practice that you believe is so incredible actually may not be worth as much as you think. Yeah. And this goes into this and I'm going to have you do this one, Don pointing, no one could see that, but I'm pointing. <laughs> why do practices that don't have that recall base, right? It's all doctor production. Why do those typically value a little lower than like a GP or an ortho that has that like recall hygiene type base? Yeah. So with those types of practices, basically that's a profit pool. If you have the hygiene or the recall, that is going to be cash that's there for you to spend and you haven't had to produce it. And so with uh, say an OMS practice, the compensation that is required for it to be equitable for what you're producing, that compensation is going to be higher than what you would see in a GP practice. Mm -hmm. So in oral surgery, you might see their compensation range between 35 to 40 percent. Uh, 45 sometimes. Yes. Yeah. And it varies by regions yep. fairly greatly. But then compare that to a GP practice that maybe the associates earning 25 to 30 percent. Um, but then as an owner, you've got, you know, a million dollar hygiene pool over here producing that you get to split. So the level of compensation that you'll get will be lower because you have that hygiene pool to yeah. pull from. And in our valuations, right, if we're following the capitalization of earnings method, mm -hmm. we have to impute back, back like a doctor comp, right? And so that doctor comp is 
all of your production. Like there right. is no hygiene. So you have to have a very low overhead in those like surgical based practices mm-hmm. or no hygiene type practices to be able to accommodate kind of those valuations that are in that higher range. So I think that's an important fact for our specialists out there. Anything else, Charles, that's hot on your mind or Don that we need to cover before we wrap up today? Well, I would say it doesn't necessarily go to ortho. It's also GP practice, just the aligners. It's a very expensive product. I mean, we're talking 13, 1400 bucks. I get that it's a $5,000 case, but man, I can see sometimes the financials where I just see these huge aligner dollars that are showing up and it's not reflective from a profitability standpoint. So it's just something to, from a overhead standpoint that we will be looking at. And again, if, if I've got an orthodontic practice that's got a 50% overhead and it's a bunch of liner cases and the liners are 12, 13% from a cost standpoint of revenue, but they're still making 50% and they've got a low team cost. I've got no problem with that. It's just where I get a little anxious is these big $3 million practices with a bunch of aligners of technology and they got a huge aligner bill, they got a huge lab bill, they got a huge supply bill, they got a huge team bill and they're just not profitable. They're just not profitable. So it's just, it's kind of managing all those expenses, in my opinion, that, that the buyer has to also be aligned with that technology (laughs) that they plan on doing that and can take over that no 100 percent. well i think don any any other things we haven't covered i know that we've tackled a lot of pieces yeah actually there is one that i know we had kind of talked about a little earlier and it's becoming more commonplace with what we're seeing in valuations is where we have say a senior doctor who has decided that the general practice world is not his bread and butter anymore and he wants to kind of spread his wings and maybe he's now created a sleep practice so you know there's now a separate entity within the entity so a practice within a practice and we've been asked to value we need to value the dental operations of the dental practice well the question is okay is that practice within a practice going to be a part of that Mm -hmm. because is your associate that is buying in do they have those skills and will they be providing those services so we have some OMS they have hair restoration clinics And so those are going to be some very complex conversations and review of financials to determine, especially if this is not going to be included in the valuation. So just kind of another example of how we look at these transitions and, and need to have a very clear understanding of what the plan is, what will be included and what will not be included. And so again, just kind of pulls you around full circle with the clean financials, making sure that those expenses are bifurcated so we can really take a a good look at those. But like Christy said before, happy to talk to anybody if they have questions about uh, special situations like that. You got OMSs that are doing breast implants. You've Mm -hmm. got GPs that are doing, you know, fillers and Botox, other oral surgeons that are doing, you know, facelifts. They're doing Mm -hmm. a ton of complicated things. Yes. And all of those are just unique skill sets that that individual quote unquote super doctor is doing, which obviously is going to impact the valuation. It just adds more risk. It can that buyer do those same procedures. So, yeah. yeah. And as we sign off, I just want to say like those things are okay, right? Like oh, hard things are okay. 
it just takes much more awareness, much more preparation, much more communication, and an understanding of like how that will impact your overall valuation is just like a key thing that you understand and that you spend the time to make sure you understand and spend the time to make sure you update your team on, hey, this is kind of how I'm different and this is why, and this is kind of how we track it and this is what my expectations are. We know that you know your practice is valuable and it's special. And we know that we deal with it every single day and we know this number is very important. So that's all we have for today. I appreciate your patience and detail, John, as we go through these valuations. (laughs) And if anyone has any questions or needs anything, you know where to find us. That's all we have for today. Thanks for joining us on episode 76 of Transition Talk. And thanks to Don for being part of it. Absolutely. As always, make sure to share the transition love with those who may not know of us yet. And of course, subscribe to Transition Talk wherever you listen to your podcast. Until next time. See you guys.